This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So if you were paying attention to that song, it's Shoshana Ben HaChochim, The Rose Among the Thorns. And I guess that that's very much in line with what it is that we're going to speak about today. Welcome to Fresh Thinking. It's Thursday afternoon. It's that time of the day where you've got to put your thinking cap on. Go lateral. Think out of the box. And let's see how we can take things that are Jewish or things that Judaism speaks about and see the depth, the width, the breadth, the insight that is normally not part of common conversation. As always, you can join the conversation at any time. You can send us a message using Telegram on 0618951019. You can SMS 34519. You can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. And for the really courageous out there, you can phone the studio 0101403020. I definitely hope that your Tisha B'Av was both an easy, fast, and a meaningful day. And it's something that's really nice to have behind us. Now we move on. Uh, we move on with the fact that it's six weeks, pretty much, to go to Rosh Hashanah. I know that that's something that always gets people just a little bit edgy, especially considering this year that the Yom Tov season ends quite late. So by the time the Yom Tovs wind down, so does the rest of the financial year. Busy, busy time. Time to focus, time to get ourselves into spiritual high gear. Before we can do any of that, though, there's a highly significant date on the Jewish calendar. It starts tonight, continues tomorrow. It is called colloquially to Be'av, the more correct term is Chamisha Asar Be'av, the 15th of Av. I'm sure you've heard the term to Be'av. And so that's going to precipitate some of our conversation over here today. The first question, though, is who from our astute listeners? We know that there are many people listening to the show who have quite a lot of healthy Jewish knowledge. So what is it? What is to Be'av, if you had to give the one-liner, the marketing campaign for the definition of to Be'av, what is this day? It starts tonight, continues tomorrow, 34519, if you'd like to SMS your thoughts on that, and then that will launch our conversation. You can send a message on Telegram, 0618951019. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. One day, one day, we'll get that pronunciation right. Welcome to Fresh Thinking. We're talking today about, or in the context of Tu Ba'av, which starts tonight, continues tomorrow, and is surprisingly defined by the Talmud as one of the two greatest Yomim Tovim. The literal translation, I suppose, would be good days, but the better translation is festivals of the Jewish calendar. The other one being Yom Kippur, by the way, which I know is always a surprise to people. Think, what, Yom Kippur is one of the greatest festivals of the whole year. How do you get your head around that? So this day of Tubav, I was actually checking before the show. I figured I'll look at the hashtag Tubav. And, of course, you can imagine that there are a number of different ways to spell that. And notice that the most popular Hashtag doesn't bother with a, any uh, apostrophes to Ba'av. And what comes up on that hashtag straight away is exactly, and I know I've spoken about this before on air at this time of the year, is exactly what irks me about the way that the holiday has evolved in many people's minds. And you see that everybody's having these big to Ba'av parties as if it's a huge singles get-together. Now, that has historical basis. Don't get me wrong. It does. But perhaps the way that it plays out in a modern context is not 
necessarily in line with the original ancient tradition. That's not what we're going to speak about today. So here's the background. Tuba'av, the 15th of Av, was classically associated with marriage. Now there's history behind that because there were different pockets of time in Jewish history where certain Jewish communities were banned from marrying other Jewish communities. So at one point in time, the tribes were not allowed to marry from tribe to tribe. I guess you could call it intermarriage in that context. And that was a ban that was eventually lifted. Guess which day of the calendar? On the 15th of Av to Be'av. There was also a time in Jewish history where the tribe of Benjamin had been ostracized by the rest of the Jewish community because of their attitudes towards criminals in their midst. And for a period of time after that, part of the ban was that you were not allowed to marry somebody who came from the tribe of Benjamin. That ban was subsequently lifted also on Tuba'av, the 15th of Av. Later in Jewish history, that evolved into a particular ritual that would happen on Tisha B'av, uh, sorry, on Tuba'av. And that ritual was about allowing single people to get to meet. It allowed the young women who were looking for a shidduch to go out into the public space. They would specifically wear nondescript clothing. So it wasn't about appearances. Uh, they would actually borrow the clothes from each other. So it wasn't even about your taste or the brand label and so on and so forth. And it was a matchmaking time. And that is the overarching theme that Tu Ba'av has. I say overarching because that's how it's developed in society. Incidentally, from a traditional Jewish view, that is not the overarching theme of Tu Ba'av. It is a significant theme. The overarching theme actually is the recovery and the rebound after the terrible depression of Tisha Ba'av. So actually, this is a day that is supposed to symbolize new opportunity, rebirth, and most importantly, the capacity to bounce back from difficulty, challenge, or failure. So I know a lot of people will naturally hear in that reference, maybe oblique, to marriage. So no, that's not the association. It's not because it's about bouncing back from challenges and failure that it becomes a time associated with marriage. But there is definitely a lot of thought around relationship at this time of the year as we go into Tuba. So I thought if this is the time of the year that's about matchmaking, and we all know how much matchmaking is a big part of the Jewish world, not only because of Fiddler on the Roof, but because of the notion that if you can bring a couple together and allow the establishment of a new Jewish Jewish family, you've done something of incredible value to the world as well as obviously to the individuals. So seeing as this is a time of matchmaking, rather than to just get caught up in the white parties or the big uh, socials that have sprung up as Tubav events, particularly a year like this where it's on a Thursday night, it's a party night to start with. I thought, hang on a second, it's all very well to introduce people, and we do it, and it's a good thing to do, and we should think about it, and I really believe that every person, if you know single people, you should give some thought to somebody that you might be able to introduce them to. They'll be eternally grateful to you if it's a successful match. But besides all of that, it's not just simply a matchmaking game, right? So you introduce so-and-so to so-and-so, and then they go off and they date for X amount of time, and perhaps they get engaged and subsequently married, and that's beautiful, and we celebrate, and it's exciting and wonderful. Do we spend enough time thinking about, talking about, empowering people around, how do you make sure that once the two have met, 
that the marriage they create is sustainable. So my question today is, and this is where we'll start our conversation along the two of lines, and you could share personal experiences, but it'd be much more valuable if you could share something of Jewish thinking. What do you advise? So here's a couple who is pre-marriage. Here's a couple who's just recently engaged. They're still at that point where they gaze into each other's eyes and the whole world is beautiful. So what would you tell them? We know that we have a very big problem, both locally and certainly internationally, with a collapse of marriage over time. We know that there are high divorce rates. What would you tell a couple? Here's a couple who's pre-married. They've just met. Maybe they've already made the commitment and they're engaged. So what would you tell them? Either calling on your own experience or things that you have studied in the wisdom of Judaism. What do you tell people to help? What's a good advice to help protect that marriage, to help sustain. What, what, what do you tell people? What should they be thinking? What attitude should they have? What things should they be doing in order to ensure the longevity of their marriage? That's what we're going to talk about today. You know, it's beautiful when you see a couple who has been married for a long period of time. We recently, just the other day, had a couple celebrate their golden anniversary at our shul. I remember my grandparents celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary. It's a magnificent thing to watch. People who have had that level of commitment to each other over such a lengthy period of time. And you wonder uh, what, what kind of wisdom can we glean from those people who have so much experience under their belt. But you don't have to have been married for 50 years to share an opinion. You might feel that you've been married for a shorter period of time, but you have such a solid relationship that you'd love to share certain insights, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've watched things fall apart in the most horrific way, and sometimes it's valuable to share opinion based on what people have done inappropriately. So what do you tell the couple? This is something that rabbis think about a lot because couples come to us, they're about to get married, and they say, yeah, here we go. This is what we're going to do, and this is the venue, and this is the music we're going to have, and that's who's doing the flowers, and this is who's going to be in the retinue, and the rabbi's like, whoa, hang on a second, it's very nice, and we can talk about the wedding, and we must talk about the wedding, but there is something That happens after the wedding and hopefully for the rest of your life, it's called the marriage. What do you tell people? How do you advise somebody or a couple? How do you advise them? What are the key things that people should know to help keep that marriage stable, to help keep that marriage for the long term? What do we know from Jewish wisdom? What do we know from personal experience? Shalom bias, the, the serenity, the harmony in a home. Is one of the most important ideals that a person should walk, work towards. So your thoughts on three four five one nine. Otherwise, send us a message on Telegram. Oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. You can call the studio. Oh one oh one four zero three zero two zero. And then, of course, we'll take your tweets at Chai FM and at Rabbi Shish. What do you tell the couple who's about to get married? This is fresh thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So you're sitting in front of this couple. They're about to get married. They look so optimistic, so happy, so in love. Now, what do you tell them? What do you tell them as they're about to head off into marriage? What's your advice? It's got to be advice, right? People have experience, and surely you can share some of that experience and help somebody, help a couple. Here's uh, Leanne on Twitter who says, I don't know if it will reduce divorce, but I try to tell newlyweds to remember that love is a verb. And I hear that often from people. Love is a verb. People often tell you that in Hebrew, the word ahava comes from the root hav, which means to give. 
So it's a proactive thing, right? Don't expect that love is going to happen. That's probably one of the problems that we have living in today's world. People say that love is going to happen. You see that, incidentally, when the Torah tells us about our forefathers and it tells us about how they developed in their relationship. And it is interesting if you think about it. Here's the Torah, which is essentially a book of laws, although it's not. It's a guide to all of life, and that's what Torah will tackle every single topic within life. So you will find that there is that sense, that uh, notion in the Torah a number of times by various of the great people of how love was a second step. There were, marriage was a step that preceded love. And I know that for many people that's something which is very difficult to understand. But then again, love as a concept is very difficult to understand. I wonder as a uh, continuum on our question, so what do you tell a couple before they get, in, before they get married? Here's another question. Love. How much is love a part of what makes a marriage succeed? And I suppose it's fair to say that it makes a very big contribution, but is it the single biggest? That's something that we have to think about and discuss as well. So there's always going to be a number of questions that uh, emerge from this kind of conversation. Here are a couple of, uh, couple of thoughts. I always find some people who just, they, they just love the tongue in cheek. We have a good sense of humor in our fresh thinking audience. So somebody says, I know a couple who was happy for 20 years and then they met. Now, to be honest, we often do hear that. And I think if you look in Torah sources and you look at the way that people behave in today's world, there's a big disparity on exactly that line. Yes, there's a tremendous amount that you can laugh when it comes to the conversations around relationships. That's fine. You're, you're welcome to laugh. It's a, there are funny things about the nature of that particular part of our lives. And there's some really good jokes out there about marriage and about spouses. However, at the same time, you've got to be really, really careful with that because there is a fine line between something that is humorous yet dignified and something that is no longer dignified. You know, when couples make digs at each other, it's not good. It's not good. It's not healthy for the marriage. It's a fascinating thing that as far as Judaism is concerned, there's a fundamental principle called Ahavas Yisrael, that you have to love your fellow Jew. It's a fundamental principle. And funnily enough, we somehow in our minds divorce Excuse the pun. I didn't even think of that. We divorce the difference between, in our minds, between love of a fellow Jew, that person out there, and the kind of love that we're supposed to have for our spouse. Whereas if you think about it, to love your fellow Jew as yourself is the fundamental principle that marriage is supposed to be based on. So in the same way as you have to love people, regardless of uh, how close they are to you or not, you actually have to find that in your marriage as well. So doing something that is a little bit cynical, sharing a joke, a dig, maybe joking about your spouse in front of other people, and they're perhaps a little bit uncomfortable, even outright humiliated by it, that's toxic. That's the kind of thing that I think we should advise people before they get married. It's not the way to talk. It doesn't matter if everybody else around you is doing it, and it's backslapping, and everybody's laughing, and it's all fun. It's not. It's not all fun. And somebody's going to get hurt. The way that we speak, the Rambam speaks about how you should treat yourself with dignity that is suited to yourself and the way you treat your spouse is with dignity that is beyond what is suited to yourself. 
That's how it should be. Here's Janice on SMS who says, marriage is not 50-50. It is 100-100. And I think that that's very good advice because while you could think of the partnership of marriage as a 50-50 partnership, truth of the matter is that each side has to put in 100%. There's a, a very interesting formula that I've heard people use. It goes like this. You are only responsible for 50% of a relationship, but that 50% you are 100% responsible for. And means to say, you can't make somebody behave in a certain way. You can't make them feel a certain way. All you can do is your level best to show that you care, to be kind, to be loving, to be understanding, to be tolerant. Isn't it interesting that we always talk about this concept of love the next person? But actually, if you go back in Torah and you read from our sages, or at least in the Talmud, it's a very, very famous story, and it's an incredibly insightful story. And that's the story of the fellow who came to Hillel. Hillel was one of the Talmudic elders. And he said to him, look, I'd like you to teach me the entire Torah, so the whole ethos of Judaism as I stand here on one foot. And Hillel said to him, what you would hate done to you, don't do to somebody else. The rest is commentary. Now, there are many, many things that we can glean from that. But one of them is, if you would hate to be spoken to in a certain way, then don't speak that way to other people. If you would hate to be ignored, don't ignore somebody else. If you would hate to be judged, then don't judge. If you would hate to be shouted, don't shout. And while it might be a huge task to apply that to every single person, which is what we're expected to do, good place to start would be in marriage. It'd be a good place to start. Think before you say or do something. Think for a moment. Would you, if the shoe was on the other foot, and if this was going to be the mode of conversation headed in your direction, would you be happy? Would you accept it? Would you be comfortable with it? If you're not sure, don't do it. Err on the side of caution. So this concept of love is not romantic love as far as the Torah is concerned. Romantic love could be quite fleeting. There are some couples who have romantic love and it lasts them for their whole lives. There are other couples who have romantic love in the early years and then it dies and the stresses of life take over and the humdrum of home life is no longer attractive. And the person who you married has become a little bit more grumpy or stressed or put on a few kilos or doesn't look exactly like they looked at the time that you married them. So the love that we speak about from, and this is definitely something we should be teaching couples before they get married, is the love that is predicated on what is called Ahavas Yisrael. In the same way as there are people out there who the Torah expects you to love, not in the romantic sense, in the sense as you would not do something to them if it was the kind of thing you wouldn't want done to you. That's a really good thing to keep in mind as you go into marriage. If it's something that you wouldn't want done to you, well then just simply don't do it to them. What are your thoughts? What would you tell a couple? It's uh, Erev Tu Ba'av. It's that time of the year where on the Jewish calendar we speak a lot about matchmaking, introducing people, setting up marriages, ensuring the continuity of the Jewish people. So you've got a couple who is engaged what advice do you have for them before they get married? Love to hear your thoughts. 34519 by SMS. You can send messages on Telegram. 0618951019. Number of tweets coming through. You can join them at Rabbi Shish or at Chai FM. So we're known as the people of the book. We are literary connoisseurs, consumers of words and prose, sharers of ideas. In short, 
We are readers. Chai FM is starting a book club. Would you like to be one of the Chai FM book club readers? Well, you'll receive a book every month to review on the radio for our listening community. It is social. It is fun. It is mentally enlightening. So we're looking for people with a wide range of reading topics and genres. Get in touch. Email books at chaifm.com. It's 2.30 or just... Past 2.30. You're on Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Shishla. Today, ahead of two Be'av, we're talking about marriage, talking specifically about what are the things or what is the thing that you believe we should be telling new couples before they head off into this, exper- into this experience of marriage to try and help them to keep it solid. Here's somebody who says you should have, teach, we should tell them that they should have realistic expectations. Now, one of the great problems that we have in today's society is the Hollywood version of marriage. I think we know this. I think it's something we've talked about ad infinitum in the past. But it's a real thing. And part of what happens out of that is that people have expectations that are unrealistic. But I don't think it's the only reason, incidentally. I don't think you can blame the whole thing on Hollywood. People have unrealistic expectations for other reasons, too. You have an expectation, for example, that your spouse might be the same as your parents. So a guy wants his wife to behave towards him like his mother did. And maybe his mother mollycoddled him just a little bit too much. And he actually needs a wife who's going to kick him into shape and say, listen, you need to become a little bit more independent and a little bit more assertive. Maybe it's what he needs. Maybe there's a girl who wants her husband to be like her dad who really spoiled her and uh, she marries a guy who's a little bit more prudent. So you've got to be careful with expectations. We carry expectations not only from the things that we have seen on the silver screen. We carry expectations also from the imagination that we have. We carry expectations from the families that we come from. And probably one of the biggest things is we carry the expectation that the person who we marry is going to know what we think even when we haven't said it. Or maybe they'll know how we feel about something if we've never discussed it. So don't have the expectation. It's a good piece of advice. Don't have unrealistic expectations. Don't expect that somebody's going to be something that they're not necessarily going to be. You go back in history and you see the story of these, what they call the maidens of Jerusalem, used to go out in these white dresses and specifically borrowed dresses to put themselves on the uh, on the shidduch scene, so to speak, and said, you know, young man, look this way. Maybe you will find somebody who you would like to marry. It's interesting that they specifically borrowed clothes, and, and that, in a sense, mitigates expectations. So you don't marry somebody based on who they appear to be. And then you have an expectation they're going to be that person, and they're going to behave in a particular way, or they're going to come with a certain lifestyle and provide you with a certain lifestyle, whatever the case is. There's this concept of like borrowed clothes, the, the things, the externalities, the parts that people should see on first brush, that should be something which does not inform the nature of this relationship. So there's a good piece of advice. Have realistic expectations. I think it's fair to say that that's something that the Torah would agree with. Here's another suggestion. Somebody says, communication, compromise, and kindness. Now, what's what's great about that is that kindness is in there because people always talk about communication and they always talk about compromise. We don't necessarily talk enough about kindness. The Torah says, Oilom chesed yibone. 
which means the world was built on kindness. When a couple stands under the chuppah, there are various traditions that we have as part of the marriage ceremony, and those evoke certain fundamental themes of Judaism. One of them is the theme of creation. For good reason, in fact it's one of the reasons that the bride walks seven times around the groom, it's to represent the seven cycles of daylight and night, the seven days of creation. So a big theme of marriage is this theme of creation. Obviously the couple is creating a future and the couple is creating a home and the couple will please God create a family. So the theme of creation is Oilom Chesed Yibone. If you want to build, if you want to create a world, it's pretty much what a couple is supposed to be doing, there's got to be Chesed in there. There's got to be kindness in there. That's why you find that when our forefather Abraham was looking for a Shidduch for his son Isaac and he sent his proxy, his servant Eliezer, the one thing that Eliezer looked for, he did not look to see if the girl's father is a wealthy man, if he is a learned man, if he's a prominent man. He didn't want to know if the girl is a pretty girl. He didn't want to know if the girl is smart. There was only one thing that he wanted to know. Is she kind? Is she good-hearted? And there are various of the commentaries who say that we learn something really, really important from this. And that is that that good-heartedness, that kindness is one of the most essential ingredients in ensuring that a marriage lasts and that a marriage succeeds Needless to say, that is something that we all would want. So kindness, absolutely. And I think kindness might even be a more important word than love, actually. Maybe that's what uh, Leanne meant earlier when she said that love is a verb. Now, compromise. Compromise is something that you've got to be really, really careful with. I know that we always say it, and there is a place for compromise within a marriage relationship. But you also got to be careful that compromise doesn't breed resentment or doesn't create a sense of scorekeeping. I compromised last time, now this time you have to compromise. Or my compromise was larger than your compromise and so on and so forth. Because you've got to just be a little bit careful with that. Uh, there's a beautiful vort from a great Hasidic master called Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorki where he says the reason that sugar is sweet is because it is willing to dissolve and he says that specifically in context of relationship, that the fact that a person is willing to let go, that's probably more important than compromise. Compromise sounds like there's a major negotiation going on at any given time. Okay, listen, here's the compromise. I'll do golf today. You can go do your nails tomorrow kind of thing. Whereas being able to let go, you know, the mystics teach us that one of the core elements of marriage, one of the main reasons that we marry is to allow ourselves the opportunity to transcend self. As a an axiom in Judaism, the ability to transcend self, to let go of the self, is one of the deepest spiritual experiences that a person can have. Now, it's difficult to let go of self. It's near impossible. It's difficult to transcend self because this is me. This is how I think. This is what I believe in. This is what I feel. These are my priorities. This is the way I like things done. Maybe we should start there because in the marriage space, often that's one of the first things to be attacked. This is the way I like things done and then you marry somebody who really doesn't do things that way you get the person who's a neat freak and then they marry somebody who's just a little bit they don't have to be a slob but just a little bit more loose so they don't always put things back in exactly the same place where they belong or seat up seat down a toothpaste lid on off socks on the floor you know all the cliched things that come up in marriage but if you think about it it's it's not 
done to annoy us. It's part of the big, great divine plan to allow people to have somebody living with them as a coach, so to speak, like a spiritual coach in your home who's constantly pushing you to be able to transcend yourself because there's nothing more fulfilling in Jewish thought than a person who can get past their natural self, who can transcend themselves, who can become a an improved human being. And uh, letting go of yourself also allows yourself greater connection, connection with other people, connection with the community at large, and most importantly, connection with God. If you're holding on so securely to self, to my thoughts, my beliefs, my expectations, well, then you know, you're not really necessarily allowing much place for God. That's very much what Judaism is all about. So a good piece of advice to a couple before they get married wouldn't necessarily be learn how to compromise. It would be much more learn how to let go, meaning to say don't make it about – because compromise could be something you really hold on to quite tightly and you say – these are going to be the rules of engagement. You go out Tuesdays, I go out Wednesdays. And if Wednesday happens to be a public holiday, well, that's just tough, right? Or, or whatever. Uh, we're going to compromise on issues. It, it can still land up being quite sticky. Whereas the Torah approach, we use this concept called bittle, the ability to let go of self. That's a key element to marriage. Just let things go. Don't have to hold on to every single thing. Don't always have to be right. Don't always have to get your way. Don't always have to get an equitable negotiation. Why? Because there's value in the marriage. And that's what we should be teaching people. There's value in the marriage. It's not just about me and you and my needs and your needs and let's see if we can all satisfy each other. No, there's value in the marriage. There's value in the shared experience. The the, the sum is greater. What do they say? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. What are your thoughts? Three four five one nine. Those telegram messages. Oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. This is fresh thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So initially I thought that this was a joke, but uh, there's a follow-up tweet to it. My question was, what is the best advice you give to an engaged couple? And somebody says, don't get married. Okay, so I did think that was a joke, but then there's a follow-up tweet. The follow-up tweet goes like this. If divorce is that much of a concern, I'd look hard at the relationship sooner rather than later. Fine, get that. If you're going into marriage and you're worried about the prospect of divorce, look closely at your relationship, 100%. And then the person says this, not getting married is the only 1,000% action that will prevent divorce. I'd rather be happy alone than in a miserable marriage. Now, that's fair, right? It's absolutely fair. person should not have to be in a miserable marriage, right? It's not the, it's not marriage above all else. But isn't it sad if a person thinks that that is really how it's going to be? And I think there are people, you know, unfortunately, who do think that way, that let me not even get involved because it's just going to be miserable. I know from my friends and it's just really going to be miserable and let's rather stay out of it. Something to think about, probably topic for another conversation, right? Uh, sure, something to think about. Here's another suggestion somebody has, and it's a really good piece of advice. Don't think that you can change the person. Love and accept them for who they are. Isn't that interesting? Because what happens to couples is one of the main reasons that people choose to marry each other is because of certain characteristics that they like about that person, often things that they feel are absent in their own personality or have been lacking in their life. And I like this. I like this because you bring this to, to my experience, something I don't have of my own accord. Fast forward a little bit, and people are like, oh, that, that dafka, that thing that originally attracted me, that's the thing that annoys me. 
<laughs> about the person, you know. Why is it that they're always doing X and Y, which they know that I'm not good at. They know that it's they, they're always demanding this of me, and they know that it's not my skill set. Well, isn't that exactly why you married them in the first place? So don't think that you're going to change the person. I think it's incredibly good advice. Uh, people think that they're going to go into a marriage with a sense of potential. Oh, maybe that's going to change, and that's going to change. Well, don't. Don't do that. In fact, anything in life. If you don't have direct control over it, well, don't expect that you're going to change it. One of the one of the most important lessons you can ever learn in life is there's only one thing that you can change, and that is you. Now, the again, the purpose of marriage. Remember that the Torah tells us right at the beginning, loy toiv heyois haadam levadoi. It is no good for the man to be on his own. People generally just understand that to mean it is no good for a person to be alone, alone. Now, there are other words in the Torah that you could use for alone, like the word badod, alone, hein om levadod yishkon, a nation that dwells alone. Levadoi could also mean alone, because on your own, like vayivoser Yaakov levadoi, the story of Jacob when he took his whole family across the Yabok River and then went back to pick up some last minute small items. And he runs into this angelic figure and they wrestle through the night. There it says that Yaakov remained on his own. He wasn't lonely at that point in time. There's nothing to illustrate, to indicate that he was lonely. He had his whole family. In fact, he was ferrying his family back and forth across the river. I think at that point in time, it's fair to say that Yaakov felt very supported. That's the whole reason that he left Lavan's home at that point and decided to go confront his brother Asaph and all the baggage that came with that because he felt supported. He felt he had a family that was a strong family. He had financial success. He was feeling confident within himself. So to say he remained levadoi would not mean he remained lonely or alone. It's on his own. So loitoiv heyos haadam levadoi. The same word the Torah says it is no good for man to be on his own. Not necessarily just telling us it's not good for a person to be alone. Yes, it is good for people to have companionship. It's incredibly important. Not just any companionship, but that level of dedication, commitment which you find in marriage. There's something else over here. It's not good for a person to be levadoi as they are on their own, in their natural state, their unpolished form, the diamond in the rough. It's not good. It's not good for a person to be that way. The, the whole objective of life is to grow. The objective of Jewish life is to grow in a way that you had not expected, to be able to completely break out of yourselves, out of yourself. That's why the first story of the Jewish nation is a story of Exodus from Egypt, and the sages tell us that the word in Hebrew for Egypt, Mitzrayim, is the same word that implies parameters, limiting parameters, your glass ceiling. So Yitzias Mitzrayim, which is translated as the Exodus, also means breaking a glass ceiling or breaking out of the rubric that you live in, smashing the mold. That's what marriage is. If you want to give somebody healthy advice, a couple as they're about to go into marriage, that's a good piece of advice to give them is you have to understand that the purpose of this marriage is to help you smash, to, to, to help you to break the old mold of who you used to be that was good enough for the first X amount of years of your life and now give you the opportunity to become somebody who's far greater than that. And it's not an, it's not a personal, egoist, self-centered kind of thing to say, I'm marrying you because you're going to make me greater. No, because then you're, Dead in your tracks. You haven't even gotten out of the starting blocks. You can't get anywhere in marriage if you think that the person there is just your facilitator. 
No, 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 not at all. In fact, the best way that a person breaks out of themselves is to lose the sense of the fact that they're breaking out of themselves, to lose the sense of the fact that they're growing. It's exactly like when you physically grow, right? Look at a teenager goes through a growth spurt. They don't feel that they've gone through a growth spurt. They feel they're exactly the same as they were six months ago. But then the grandmother from overseas comes to visit and says, my gosh, what happened to you? You've grown ahead since I last saw you. Real growth, meaningful growth is not something that you necessarily always feel as growth until you have a milestone where you can look back and retrospectively understand Oh, that's where I was, and this is where I am. So the marriage environment is this incredible opportunity for real spiritual, personal, emotional, intellectual growth. So look at the person that you're marrying and say, I'm here to assist that person to get to become the best person that they can be. And I believe that in the process, I'll also become a better person. That's why we, that's how we go into marriage. It's like, how can I help you? How can I? Uh, you, you look, for example, at Adam and Eve. Right? Adam and Eve had a pretty rough start to their relationship. Nobody ever thinks about it in those terms. You just think, okay, there was Adam, and the next thing God made Eve. And uh, the next chapter of the story is the tree of knowledge, and then they get kicked out of uh, Gun Eden, and that's how life begins. And there's a little nuance in that story that's incredibly important. Adam, after the incident with the tree of knowledge, which quite honestly he felt was his wife's fault. I mean, he says as much to God. He says, because her, you gave me a woman. She's the one who introduced me to the fruit. That's what happened over here. Straight after that, he turns to her and he gives her a name for the first time. She's given a name. And he says, her name is going to be Chava. Her name is going to be Chava because that means Eve. That means that she is the mother of all life. Isn't that an incredible thing? Here you've got a guy who's just had a major fallout with his spouse. Their first big fight. And he immediately turns around afterwards and says, okay, that was that. Now I've got to look to see you're the mother of all life. You're going to be the one who creates the human race. You're going to be the one who produces blessing in our relationship. You're the one who's going to make me live in spite of the fact that you've challenged me with something that I did not expect. And you've caused me actually to slip up. I get that. But my attitude is not to blame and not to say, oh, I'm not getting out of this relationship, what I expected. You know, in the early days you used to do da-da-da, but now you don't do it anymore. It's a completely different attitude to say, you're going to be the source of life. In, in spite of what happened, you're going to be the one from whom I'm going to grow. You're going to be the one who's going to bring out the best in me and I'll bring out the best in you. And together we'll achieve something that is magnificent and beautiful. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. What's wonderful about this kind of a conversation is how many people have insight. And, and it's not cloned insight. It's not carbon copy, you know, the same, same kind of thing coming across in different words, which is wonderful. It is wonderful. And I think maybe it's because, well, marriage is very much a part of our lives. It's also very much a value in Judaism. So it's not surprising that people should have such strong views after uh, of it uh, Here's a nice line Before the wedding you choose After the wedding you accept <laughs> That's quite cute that, I mean, it's, it's good actually It's good Here's uh, Shmuli who says As a divorce lawyer I always ask my clients Why their marriage broke up The overwhelming answer When you wade through the sorrow Is a lack of empathy And kindness towards each other So my advice would be Just be kind to each other always That is very good Really, really good advice. Just be kind. And sometimes that's really not easy, and that's where the growth happens, when we do things that are not necessarily easy. So here we are, Erev Tuba'av, the time of the year where people are quite fixated on setting people up and 
helping people to get married, which is a beautiful thing to do. I always say, you know, think about it. Maybe there's somebody out there who you know and there's somebody you could introduce them to. They'll be ever grateful to you. But don't just stop there. It's not good enough just to say, Mr. So-and-so, meet Miss So-and-so or whatever the case is. We, we need to we need to guide people. Not everybody thinks of all these things on their own. If you, there's no oh, there's no uh, uh, substitute for experience, you know. So if you are married, and you have experience, you can share insight. Remember, general insight. You can't necessarily tell somebody that their situation is going to be the same as your situation. You have general insight. That's good stuff. And I think the most valuable thing is this: the Talmud tells us that the Hebrew word for man, and you've heard this a million times, is ish. And the Hebrew word for woman is isha. Both of them come from the word ish, which is fire, but they each have an extra letter. So the ish has an extra yud, and isha has an extra hay. And the thinking there is that a yud and a hay together are God's name. So if you want the fire in that marriage, because there should be fire, there should be passion, there should be excitement, there should be energy in a marriage. If you want it to be healthy, you've got to bring God into the picture. And more and more and more in today's world, people kind of try and go it alone and work it out for themselves and don't dig into ancient wisdom. We're fortunate. God has offered us a tremendous amount of insight. This is the manufacturer speaking, telling you how to use the product properly. You look in the Torah, read those stories, particularly the stories and the laws around marriage and the conduct of marriage that are written in the Torah. It's absolutely fascinating. We're so fortunate that we should have this kind of guidance. And maybe, just maybe, that's why this date, the 15th of Av, is not simply a date about relationships and love is in the air, but is actually a date that is very deep and meaningful because it is associated with a whole string of other historic events, all of which were about the solid base of Jewish experience because it's from that base that we, in our community, as Jewish people, will find the strength of a successful marriage. So here's to all those people looking. Please, God, you should find the person who is most appropriately suited as your shidduch and it should happen soon for those of us who are married we should have shalom bias and blessing and only good things in that marriage and to all of us we should bounce back from the low of tishabav at the beginning of this week to the high of tubaav tonight from there going to shabbos nachamu the shabbos of comfort and prepare for the next six weeks to rosh hashanah and guarantee ourselves please god a great year to come